0: The reading today comes from Acts 2, 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that they hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine.
1: Hello everyone. My name is Jonah, my pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm one of the pastors here at Zao. We have been talking about formation, what it means to be formed by God as individuals on a journey towards wholeness, but also as a body, as a collective, what it means to be formed into the church, into the body of Christ, into the people of God. It starts with that invitation we saw as Peter and the other disciples walked away from the things that they knew, said yes to that invitation, that call to adventure from God. We saw as they had doubts, and as those doubts caused them to fear and be afraid, we know that each of us has doubts along the way, and we take comfort in the fact that God remains faithful, that God remembers us even when we forget God. And last week, we were with Peter on the boat and on the water. These moments of perfection, miracles, times where we experience God in a perfect unity. Can you think of a time that you've experienced a closeness to God? Have you ever? A moment where you felt so connected, maybe to the world around you or the person in front of you, Maybe a moment where you felt like love did define the universe, did bring all life into being. That was a moment of miracle, a moment of connection to God. We saw last week that God gives us power to do great things through our faith, little though it may be, because God is generous and shares power. It's not just Jesus walking on the water. Jesus calls out to Peter to join him. And so we have this path that Peter and the disciples have been on, from call to adventure, to doubt and fear, to miraculous moments with God, with Jesus on the water, that closeness, that purity of love, that defining connection that makes life truly full and then followed moments later by that splash down to reality, the forgetting of God's face. If we were to take it story by story, we would see those same patterns over and over again, the invitation to follow Jesus, the fear, apprehension, doubt, and forgetting, the moments of miracle and connection The disciples, and Peter in particular, have this incredible journey with Jesus where they get to follow him around, learn from him, test things out. They bear witness to miracles, and they participate in miracles. And through the end of Jesus' ministry, through death and resurrection, they are right there with him, sitting at Jesus' feet, hearing his words, receiving his teachings, taking in all that is God's love fully present. At the end of the gospels, there is an invitation to go and do. There's a transition into the book of Acts. What happens after Jesus's touring ministry? You see, after Jesus rises from the dead, he stays for 40 days and teaches specifically about the kingdom, that is, the anti-empire, this different way of being, the kind of world we could have, the kind of world into which we are invited. But then, after 40 days of teaching about the kingdom, Jesus ascends up to heaven on the clouds. Gives, Jesus. Why wouldn't you just stick around? Why wouldn't you just have all of us at your feet? Why couldn't we all just follow you forever around the Galilean countryside, healing people, hearing your words of wisdom, receiving your blessings and miracles? Why couldn't you have stayed and done that for us? God wants to share in this mission with us. And that is why Jesus spent those 40 days talking about the kingdom. Because the kingdom doesn't come by sitting at Jesus' feet. The kingdom comes by building it. The kingdom comes by co-creation with God, collaborating with God, overturning the ways that are, and building the ways of love in the ways that Jesus has taught us. We build it with Jesus and it takes miracles. But our God is a God who wants to share, a God who shares power, who shares mission, who says this kingdom is ours. It is at hand, it is already and not yet. And I like to think that it is already because God is already, but it is not yet because we haven't signed on yet. The kingdom is here, it is now, but it also is near, it is coming. God has said yes to the kingdom way of being and is waiting eagerly for our yes as we dive in together and build it. And those moments of beautiful perfection, they are glimpses. Because God wants us to be able to walk on water. God wants us to be able to share in love. God wants us to be healed and connected and overjoyed. But not just for a moment, for eternity. And God wants us to feel that union with God, but also with all things. We are called into perfection and liberation for all, not just between us as individuals and God, but among ourselves with one another and God. To feel that amount of love that we have for God in those perfect moments for all of creation. To feel as loved as we have felt in those moments of connection with God, Not just loved by God, but by all things, connected in a new way of being. This is the kingdom of God. Not empire, not dominance, but community and connection, wholeness. God wants this for us, and yet it only comes into being by building it together. To be a disciple doesn't mean to merely sit at the feet of the teacher. It means being the body of Christ, doing the work of the kingdom, bringing it into being with power. While he was on this earth, Jesus taught us. It's recorded in John 14. You, that is the disciples, my followers, you will also do the works that I do. And in fact, you will do works greater than these. Which leaves many of us thinking, how exactly? <laughs> like, cool, cool, but also how? God's got a plan. Enter the Holy Spirit. Now, I love the Holy Spirit, and she does not get enough airtime. You may have heard of the Trinity sometimes called Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, sometimes called Creator, Redeemer, Sanctifier. But whatever names we have for these three persons in one, the Godhead, the many ways of knowing, being, and relating to God, God is Spirit. Creator, God is the powerful one who brings all things into being. God is Jesus, the incarnate, the enfleshed, Here with us in this moment. And God is the spirit, the wind or breath. This is what the words mean literally. In the Greek, it's pneuma. Pneuma is uh, a neuter word. The the words in Greek are gendered. Sometimes they are male, sometimes they are female, and sometimes they are neuter or neutral. And pneuma is a pointedly non-gendered word or neuter-gendered word pneuma comes from the hebrew or is related to the hebrew ruach i love the word ruach it sounds exactly like what it is it is that wind that breath of god that inhalation and that exhalation ah ruach that is the very breath of god that makes creation whole you see in genesis god the creator is building humanity out of the dust out of the dirt And God has their little dust person, and it is just dust, it's just clay, it's just earth, until God's ruach goes into that clay, and that clay becomes Adam, the first human person. So the Holy Spirit is so vast and amazing and powerful and ruach is a feminine word and it's one of the only ways that God's femininity has not completely erased in the Bible. But ruach, this feminine, wild, powerful wind and breath of God, the thing that animates life and makes it truly alive, the thing that is God and also makes us, the Holy Spirit. You can tell a lot about a church and what they believe about power by how they teach about the Holy Spirit. If a church tends to downplay the Holy Spirit's teachings, they tend to be more hierarchical. There is an order to things. There is a chain of command. This is how you follow it. It is not to be disturbed. But if a church really emphasizes the Holy Spirit, those hierarchies tend to crumble quickly Because the Holy Spirit is egalitarian. The Holy Spirit is wild. The Holy Spirit is uncontained, and she gives power to whomever she likes. Jesus teaches us in John 3, the wind blows where it will. You hear the sound it makes, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit blows where she wills, and gives her power to whom she chooses. And the Holy Spirit tends to like folks on the bottom of the hierarchy. And those born of the Spirit, that is, those who follow the windstorm of God's Spirit, who are baptized in the waters of God's Spirit, who catch the fire of God's Spirit, they have her wild, uncontrolled power. We become rebels with her. We move through the world with grace and power, changing things with a whisper or a flame or a torrential downpour. So what does the scripture say will happen when God unleashes this Holy Spirit? Your your daughters and sons will prophesy. Your young people will see visions. Your elders will dream dreams. Which brings us to Pentecost. Pentecost, though it is often talked about by Christians, is a Jewish holiday, first and foremost. It's the Feast of Weeks, and it's the celebration of the wheat harvest. It happens 50 days after Passover, and that's actually where it gets its name. Pentecost means 50th. But because Pentecost means 50th, It is not only the name of that celebration, it is also used in the scriptures to refer to jubilee. Jubilee is the 50th year, and in the 50th year, power is leveled. All debts were said to be erased in the 50th year. You could you know, use the world as it was around you to negotiate your way through for up to 49 years. But on that 50th year, all debts would be erased. All land would be returned to the people. It was a great leveling uh, event, a great redistribution of resources. A moment when power, instead of being hierarchical, all of a sudden goes back for the good of the people. The person who authored the book of Acts also wrote the book of Luke. And in the book of Luke, he talks a lot about something we refer to as the great reversal. It's a phrase that says, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And I love this. When Jesus says the first shall be last and the last shall be first, we often think of a kind of hierarchy. The first are up here, the last are down here. And so when we think the first shall be last and the last shall be first, we think it goes like this. But no, in fact, what Jesus is saying is that the first shall be last and the last shall be first. And all of a sudden, power has been leveled. It has been redistributed. It has been offered back to the people for the good of the people, not for the many under the few, not for the power of few over the many, but by the shared power of connection between us all the power that is god that unites us rather than creates dominance or abuse pentecost has the holy spirit written all over it and that's before we even get to this passage in acts but let's get to this passage in acts it has come to the time of pentecost the disciples have been traveling with jesus throughout his entire ministry. They've watched him perform miracles. They've participated in those miracles themselves. They've grown close to God, perhaps even to one another. They've watched Jesus die and resurrect. And Jesus has spent the last 40 days talking to them about this kingdom, the great reversal, the great resetting, the great redistribution, the power that is for all people, power to the people. And then Jesus ascends. And so on Pentecost, they gather, but this time they feel they're without him. Across the city are gathered many kinds of people. You see, during Pentecost, many people would pilgrimage to Jerusalem. People would come from all over And so we have people from all over, anywhere travelable, people coming into the city for the feast of weeks. But the disciples, the text says, are gathered in one room, and all of a sudden they hear what sounded like violent rushing wind from heaven. I wonder who that is. The noise filled the entire house in which they were sitting and something appeared to them that seemed like tongues of fire. Now in addition to all the scriptures we have about Ruach and panuma, wind and fire are constant symbols of God, of God's power, God's presence. The scriptures promised a new temple, a new place to gather, a new place to worship God, A new sense of home and belonging and the people of God were longing for that the scriptures the prophets promised that in this new temple God's presence would be felt with fire and wind when the new temple was built and offered it would be filled with God's presence and so the people are waiting for God to fill the new temple so that they can have a sense of belonging, so they know where to go to find God. And on this day, this great leveling, this redistribution of power, this Pentecost, fire, wind, the presence of God, where does it go once it gathers in that room? It doesn't go to any building or structure or temple. It goes into God's people. The gathered disciples receive the presence of God, that fire and wind. It is poured out on each of them with power and might, with wind, with fire, with magnificence. The new temple is not a structure. It is the family of God. The new temple is no longer a place you must pilgrimage toward, but a community gathered and sent out to the ends of the earth. Immediately, all of those receiving the Spirit begin to tell of God's love. They are preaching and proclaiming truths as though it cannot be contained. They start babbling. But they don't just do it in the ways that they've always known or heard. Because there are many gathered, pilgrims from, the text says, Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Egypt, and Libya, they spoke so many different languages. So how did the disciples speak when they proclaimed the good news of God? Did they speak in Aramaic, the language of their neighborhoods? Did they speak in Hebrew, which is the language of their religious spaces? Or maybe they spoke in Greek, the language of dominance they spoke in every language that was understood by anyone who had gathered they start pouring out truths in a way that all of these pilgrims from all over the place could hear it's kind of a a reverse tower of babel see earlier in the scriptures way earlier we have this story this myth about how the people of god were trying to build something for their own glory and how they were all of one nation and all spoke one language but this this project for their own glory drove them apart from one another and all of a sudden they found that they couldn't understand each other they were speaking different languages and no one understood the other it is a tragic story of the separation of human beings the ways that we forget one another, the ways that we can no longer relate to one another. And here we have a reversal of that story, almost. A true reversal would have them all speaking the same language and all understanding it, and yet that wouldn't really be the kingdom of God, would it? The kingdom of God is not a monoculture. The kingdom of God does not come in one form or one language. The kingdom of God does not come only to one kind of people. In the kingdom of God, we are fully ourselves with our own history and our own language. Probably the people gathered there to pilgrimage did understand Hebrew, did understand Greek, but they had other languages of their hearts, of their homes, of their neighborhoods, And those were the languages the disciples poured out with the Holy Spirit to share the good news with them. Not the language of dominance, the language of their hearts. The language they were prepared to receive. I imagine this beautiful cacophony. God doesn't speak to us in just one way. God speaks to us in the ways we are prepared to receive. The language of our hearts our history, our context. God speaks to us through the traditions we hold dear, through the people we trust, through the natural world around us. And each of us is different. Each of our hearts communicates and receives in different ways. And sometimes this is metaphorical. We may be moved by art. I know I'm moved deeply by music. One of the ways that God speaks to me is through music, but others are moved by the the picture of waves on the lake or the presence of a loved one, the depth of a hug. Those are the ways that we can feel and hear and receive the love of God. Sometimes those languages are practical. People receiving this service right now, for instance, are variously listening to me speak, watching Sarah sign, reading subtitles, or some combination. God never demands that we communicate or receive communication in any one way. God finds a way to speak directly to our hearts. And so when the Holy Spirit pours out on God's people, on God's disciples, She invites followers to do the same to find the ways to communicate love that will be received by all those who need it to find new ways of being new ways of showing new ways of doing this kingdom building work. This catches everyone off guard. The people are amazed hearing their own languages out of context. And their first reaction is, you drunk, bro? Which leads to my favorite line, (laughs) one of them, in scriptures. No, these men are not drunk, for it is only nine in the morning. You wait, but they are caught off guard. Perhaps they've never been spoken to so directly before in that way, in that place, as they are pilgrimaging towards God. But these disciples, once they caught the Spirit, They shared the wisdom of God that the kingdom would not come just in Aramaic or in Hebrew or in Greek. They knew that it would come to all people in all languages. They knew that to participate in the work of God would mean learning, growing beyond themselves, being sent out beyond their comfort zones. That they could no longer sit at the feet of Jesus and merely bask That they had to let that love that they felt, that love that they were still pursuing, that love that they would still find in moments of miracle, they had to let each of those miracle moments fuel them as they went out to build the kingdom of God. Not waiting for it to descend from on heaven, not waiting to be ascended up into it, but to build it here and now with one another and the wild, rebellious power of the Holy Spirit. What new language are you called to learn? What new languages are we called to learn? What new ways of being will the Holy Spirit impart to us if we have the courage to receive her and to get caught up in her windstorm? Again, this could be practical or metaphorical. Practically, right now, the worm is teaching us a lot about tech Cameron has watched thousands, probably, of YouTube videos trying to learn the language of technology to come be with you safely in your own home. And it is not easy. It is not easy to learn a new way of being. It is not easy for me to learn to preach through a lens to you rather than to feel your presence here with me. It is not easy and it has required hours of labor, and yet the fruit that is coming from that, the fact that we do get to be together, the fact that God's love bringing together a community beyond the boundaries that we previously had, that Zao now gets to span the country, that we get to be a different way, that we get to love one another in these radical, power-shattering, leveling ways because Cameron was willing to get on YouTube. And every every week is willing to troubleshoot a lot of bad problems that happen. But these also can be metaphorical new ways of being. New language to learn could mean finding your art, finding your expression, finding your voice, What are the ways that you bring yourself into the kingdom? What are the ways that God refuses to have the kingdom come into existence without you? There is something that the kingdom needs and longs for and will not be complete without that can only come from you. You are not left to discover or build or offer that alone. In fact, you are imbued with the Holy Spirit of God who descends who wants to sweep you up and you are called to do that as a gathered people. The disciples didn't receive the Spirit alone in the desert or up on a mountaintop. They received the Spirit gathered together, discerning, worshipping, looking for her. And so. This call to discipleship is a call to come together and to go out. A call to seek God through moments of love and connection and then to have those miraculous moments fuel us into a a babbling, cacophonous outpouring of the various languages and expressions we learn in order to share God's love with the world, unmake the hierarchies and powers of evil, and build together with God a kingdom we cannot yet imagine. We are called to catch the power of the Holy Spirit and to build a new creation in the name of Jesus, with Jesus. We are sent to be change agents of love. What do you need to do to catch the Spirit, to lean on your community, and to offer your unique contribution to the kingdom? Jesus could do it without you, but refuses, because it wouldn't be worth it if you weren't there. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, we thank you for being powerful and generous. We thank you for pouring out your power on us, trusting us with it. We thank you for inviting us into new ways of being, and we pray that you would give us the courage and the skill to learn the new languages of love that are required. God, please continue to fuel us with moments of perfection, connection, and love. Let us find that in one another and in unexpected ways. God, you are good. May your good change us for the better. Amen.